0: By now, nearly the entire internet has Google technology underneath it, which means Google dictates the trajectory of the web. Today on Big Tech War Stories, we're going to go back to a crucial moment that enabled that pervasive dominance. In this episode, we return to Google's acquisition of DoubleClick, the leading independent ad technology of its time, and talk about the deal and its implications. It's going to be a discussion where you'll hear a different perspective on tracking cookies than perhaps you're used to, along with a broader history of the web, and whether the proliferation of this technology was actually good. Either way, you'll learn a key reason why Google was able to make $237 billion last year in ad revenue alone, more than the GDP of Greece. Ari Paparo, a DoubleClick vice president who joined Google via the acquisition, is here to share the story deep inside the room of what happened and its implications. And so I'm so excited to welcome him to the show. Ari, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. First of all, like we like to start these interviews with just a little explanation of who you are, what your background was, and then we can get into like how you then ended up being within DoubleClick at this moment where you had effectively the biggest companies on the internet bidding, you know, lots of money for the right to own this nascent advertising company. Sure
1: thing. I'm Ari Papero. Nowadays, I'm a podcaster on Market TV, and I like to call myself an ad tech influencer. But back in, we're talking about 2008 more or less, I was a vice president of product management for DoubleClick while it was still an independent company. I had uh, been in ad tech for a couple of years, helping build some of the more interesting, newer forms of advertising, like video advertising, which was brand new at the time. And, uh, I saw firsthand as a troop, as a member of the team, I would, I would say I was a colonel, not a general, uh, this incredible transformation that was happening in advertising. And in a very short amount of time, how the entire industry changed Google taking the lead, but also Microsoft and others being involved. So looking forward to telling you the whole history there. So for those who don't know, what is, what was DoubleClick? DoubleClick is one of the oldest surviving technology companies. It is a company that invented or pioneered, if not invented, the idea of using software to help publishers to serve the ideal ad on their web pages and advertisers to track where their ads were showing. We're talking about mostly open internet ads, so these are banner ads and things like that on websites on on app mobile apps on TVs nowadays. Um, we're not talking about social ads on Meta. So we're talking about kind of open internet advertising, which is a pretty large market. It's in the in the many
0: tens of billions of dollars a year. What is the ideal ad on a website? What does that mean?
1: Well, that was always the motto. Double click at this motto. Right ad to the right person at the right time. That was the goal. And uh, you never could get there. You could, you could get close, but you could never get there. Uh, but the ideal ad is for... A product that the person's interested in or might be interested in or can generate interest in that product at a time when they're interested in potentially viewing the ad. So they're looking at content that's compelling, but not uh, the ad's not too interruptive, too annoying. Um, and it's tracked properly. I mean, that's, that's a very ad tech-centric way of looking at what the best ad is. If you ask a creative person, they would say maybe Super Bowl ad that makes you cry. Um, I don't think many banner ads have made many
0: people cry. Uh, but it has generated a lot of sales and a lot of brand interest. Well, not from joy or sparking emotion, but there are some times where those banner ads do I cause agree. pain. <laughs> I've, I've cried. <laughs> I mean, certainly when I'm trying to read local news, I definitely will get served so many ads. I can hardly read the, the paper, but I don't believe that that's the technology problem. I believe it's the publisher's problem. But let me ask you this, because you bring up the fact this whole idea of serving and tracking um, this Practice has gotten a lot of heat. Uh, and we're going to go into like sort of how it played out within Google. But it's important table setting to ask you this question, right? People, It's gotten a lot of heat. People call it surveillance. Uh, sur- what is it? Surveillance, surveillance capitalism. capitalism. It's just um, brilliant. So, so talk a little bit about the trade-offs there and how you think about it having helped pioneer this within DoubleClick.
1: Sure. If left unchecked, advertisers would love to Serve every ad to a person who they could identify by their you know name, address, social security number, everything. you know there, there's no limit to the amount of data advertisers would like to have in an ideal world, but we don't feel as a society that makes sense and also as a technology industry um, that would be sort of pretty invasive and no one would want that. Um, So there's been this dialogue going on since the mid 90s, since advertising first showed up on the Internet as to how to protect the consumer's anonymity. I don't like to say privacy because privacy means different things to different people Um, and what aspects of the user's identity can be used or revealed in some cases to the advertiser. Um, And the longstanding the longstanding sort of consensus point was anonymous third party cookies. So as you surf around the Internet or a device of different kinds, a string of letters and numbers would be associated with your browser. And that would be as far as it went. So you wouldn't really be able to tell that it was Alex or that uh, or, or your address or things like that. But they would be able to tell that you might be interested in sports or you might be searching for a new car to buy or something like that. Um, that was the consensus point, And that consensus point is kind of moved in various ways. We could do, you know, a multi-hour podcast on the history of, of that idea. Um, but it's been breaking down for the last 10 years, right? Um, so the last 10 years, the idea of this anonymous identifier is breaking down. Uh, notably, Apple has uh, sort of eliminated its use on Apple products. You can't use third-party cookies in any meaningful way on any Safari browser across devices. And the big news in this year, 2024, is that Google is promising as well to remove third-party cookies from Chrome. And now there's a whole discussion about what should replace them. And once again, it's a very complicated topic. There's a lot of options, some of which are consumer-facing, like login to get more benefits from your publication, and that data is used, your email address is used in different ways. And then there are more technological solutions, like differential privacy, where the user wouldn't have any input at all, and the advertiser would effectively be blocked from knowing anything about the user while still serving an ad based on some sort of cohort or other technology
0: now Ari, the way that you described the you know the cookie process you know seems like fairly innocuous and then you went right to why people are trying that the the fact that people are trying to replace it what what you know take us between a and c there right like what was the b why did why did it all of a sudden become this villain of the internet
1: yeah it's it's funny. it's it's very funny, actually. Um, because there really isn't much of any harm from third party cookies. Uh, yet they've been the main target of privacy advocates and other efforts to improve consumer privacy. Um, to my knowledge, there's not a single court case or a single instance in when in which a user's third party cookie has been used to hurt them in any way. Um, no lawsuits, no divorces, no nothing. Um and yet, it's the number one target of privacy advocates including the Apple leadership who took who took this as an opportunity to kind of damage its rivals by making it a demon meanwhile there are very serious privacy issues online there are things like location trackers where there have been numerous cases of people's identities being unveiled using their mobile location for uh, priests on grinder being one example um, or abortion clinics or other things like that so, The privacy world is very complicated, and it's very important that consumers have a degree of control over their identity. Some would argue total control over their identity. That's great. We could have that conversation. Uh, But third-party cookies were the easiest thing to point at, primarily because you can make an argument that went something like, there are these companies you've never heard of who are tracking you across the web. Would you like to stop them? And the answer is, yeah, sure, I'll stop them. What's the harm to pay, (laughs) right? And the harm to you is nothing. The harm to the journalists who are paid based on CPMs, which decline
0: when cookies aren't present, is very significant. Okay, I'm going to push back on the journalism thing quickly, and then we're going to get into the Google story. I would say that, yes, um, you can monetize a publisher site well if you have a strong ad tech ecosystem, right? However, you can also find ways to approximate what that publisher's audience looks like. So, for instance, someone can um, take the New York Times audience right, and build build cookies based off of that and then allow people to target the Times audience on sites that do not spend that much money on journalism, leaving the Times with less pricing power than they would have if you could only find its audience there. What's your response to that?
1: That is accurate. So, in the world of third-party cookies, that has a great name, we call it, called Data Leakage. Uh, the data is leaking from the New York Times to a third party, which then uses it on a different website, and the New York Times effectively is losing value. Uh, that happens, and it's a problem. Um, I don't think that's the point I was trying to make. The point I was trying to make is that if you are a publication that is paying journalists and you, one stream of your revenue is CPM-based advertising, the switch from a third-party cookie environment to a non-third-party cookie environment will reduce your revenue by a number that is estimated to be somewhere between 30% and 60% per page Mm -hmm. view.
0: That's a lot. Um, and, And people are a little bit panicked about that. Yeah. And so when we talk about CPM, that's cost per thousand views of an ad or impressions that it showed up in somebody's browser window. And I can confirm, like, when we sell ads on big technology, it's not that we want to track, we don't track, give like user emails or anything like that, but... It's important for us to know like if, you know, how many clicks went to an advertiser and if they can't measure that on their page, it's like sort of, what are we selling them? It becomes much more difficult to fund the type of work that we do.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting topic as well because clicks are largely unaffected. You can still track clicks in a decently effective way in terms of volume. What's hard to tell is whether someone after they clicked, then two days later decided to buy something or made a Mm -hmm. phone call and decided to buy something. Um, those things are very affected by the reduction in cookie availability. Um, but the other aspect here is that uh, there's been this sort of story for the last 20 years that no one clicks on banner ads. Uh, you may have heard some, some people with who are not very good at statistics say something like, you're more likely to get bit by a shark in the ocean than click on a banner ad. Uh, I don't know how they came up with that number, but it's wrong. Um, the banner ad click-through rate has been hovering around 0.1% for 20 years. And that's not great, but it's also the fact that most of the buyers of banner ads are not looking for clicks. They're looking for sort of brand advertising. And so, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, clicks are really important to someone like yourself who has a very specialized audience who might be you know, directly, con- directly connecting viewers with advertisers. Um, in a more mainstream world where you're going to TMZ or something just to read some gossip,
0: uh, you're probably not going to drive a lot of clicks. Yeah, and I'm happy to report that our click-through rate is higher than the average, and we also do brand lift. So here on the show, I'm also gonna promote that product. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> what I'm gonna say is, uh, and you'll tell me if this is wrong, DoubleClick got so good at figuring out who, pe- like, not who they were online, but what their behavior was online, that it built this ma- like mass repository ability to target. And then all of a sudden Google, which had done a great job figuring out how to sell ads next to the searches that you make, decided that there was a whole rest of the internet that it was sending traffic out to and it could probably make money through ads that way and that its proprietary data wasn't going to take it that far. It needed something like a double click to help it make money through ads on the rest of the internet. How close am I to what actually happened? (laughs) That is not what happened. (laughs) <laughs> okay, you you tell me then.
1: <laughs> All right. This is were, why we it, have these conversations by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> what DoubleClick was a software company. DoubleClick did not sell any advertising at the time it was acquired. So it had some ups and downs over its lifetime. It had sold advertising in the 1990s, but it no longer did in the mid 2000s when I was there. What happened that was really fascinating was DoubleClick had effectively every single major publisher in the world using its software. So it didn't have the data, it didn't own the data, but it had access to the data. It had tags on the page it had business relationships with these publishers. Google had enormous amounts of data. It had your search history. It had, you know, they didn't call it, you know, um, AI at the time, but it had the best, you know, machine learning about the data that understand what people are interested in. It had hundreds of thousands, literally, of advertisers using Google AdWords, and so if you could put what Google had with the, what we call the inventory, meaning the ad slots on the publisher side, that was the it really interesting thing that was going on at the time. And the reason that be, suddenly became a big deal was twofold. One was because Google, dominant in search even back then, was trying to build its kind of rest of the web business through a product that at the time was called AdSense. Um, So AdSense were these text ads that appeared in banner slots. You probably have seen them, little blue text ads lined up next to each other. So they were trying to grow this business through AdSense, but it was sort of a limit to how much they could grow the little text ads. They really did the good ads, you know, the car ads, insurance ads, the video, stuff like that. And meanwhile, a new technology had been invented in the advertising world, not by DoubleClick, but adopted by DoubleClick, called an ad exchange that would allow buyers and sellers to transact in real time about which ad should show up. And that was the real impetus, and I could kind of go into that in some depth, but that basically blew up the digital advertising world,
0: and we're still kind of living with the consequences of that. And so that's what Google was interested in, was was the, is that so different from what I said that they wanted to extend their advertising across the web, or? You had that part right. It was the double click part that was not right. Okay. Fair enough. So so basically, Google sees this company, and it sees that it has an ad exchange, and it, can, it sees that it can up it the, the level of advertising that it can get involved with, and DoubleClick becomes something that it thinks can take it to that next level.
1: Yes. Close? And they weren't the only ones. Right. Okay. Effectively, what happened was um, the ad exchange was invented by a company called Right Media, although some people say it was a different company um, called Ad ECN, but... The idea was for the first time in, in literally the history of, human, of advertising for hundreds of years, ads could be bought and sold in real time as opposed to uh, being bought and sold in advance using you know, steak and martinis and faxes and stuff like that. And so this ad exchange that was invented had an enormous benefit to both buyers and sellers. Buyers could find that audience on sites they'd never thought about buying on, perhaps. Um, they could buy a single impression on a given website. Instead of millions at a time, and sellers could find the highest highest price, the highest advertiser willing to pay the highest price for that. Give for a single impression. Not mm-hmm. once again, not someone you knew, not someone you had to do, take out for dinner, but you could actually sell on a real time basis. Um, that was invented. Then about a year later, DoubleClick announced it was getting into that game. So they announced the DoubleClick Ad Exchange, and as I mentioned earlier, DoubleClick had this amazing footprint of all the biggest and best publishers in the world using it. Um, so they already had the sell side locked up. Um, and if you, if you think about it, the advertising business globally is something like $300 billion and was all transacted the old way. Suddenly there's a technology like the first stock exchange where you can trade in real time and it was pretty obvious it was going to be a transformative invention that could affect that whole $300 billion. So if you had an interest in being part of that, um, DoubleClick was, potent- was the prettiest uh, technology at the ball, I guess you'd say, because you could instantly access all the places you wanted to actually buy ads on.
0: Yeah. And around this time, I started my career as a media buyer. And so I started to, <laughs> I was working at um, New York City's Economic Development Corporation, and they were doing everything in print. And I was like, wait a second, you guys know that we can go to the internet, we can learn a lot more about our audience, we can spend a lot less money, right? Digital dimes and print dollars, which kind of sucked for newsletters, but it was great for advertisers. And, uh, and then after that job, I spent a year selling ad tech, including the ad server that you built, the DoubleClick for publishers. Um, so that was quite, quite fun and illuminating and sort of like what grounded me in the technology world that I'm reporting on today which is just a side note, but it's a funny side it, note It is a fun especially yeah I mean being it was it was a product that effectively sold itself so much so that I wasn't working for Google, but Google had other companies selling that server to accounts that it didn't just it knew it only cared about the biggest accounts. It didn't want the small accounts and we would resell it to like the smaller accounts and make That's still our the case tiny yeah. commission. still the case. okay, so so double click is doing this. And it's starting to pick up steam. And then I imagine there's a fairly juicy uh, story about how DoubleClick ended up being the company that Google acquired. So before we get to it, I just want to take a quick break and say to everybody who's listening to our free preview here, thank you very much. If you want to get the second half of this conversation, you could uh, sign up for Big Technology Premium and listen to it on BigTechnology.com or in your podcast app of choice. Uh, And for those who are here with us already, premium subscribers, thank you very much. We'll see you on the other side of this break.